Hello and welcome to episode number 470 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell and my guest this week is Becky Chambers. She's the author of the Wayfarer series and a new novella, A Psalm for the Wild Built, which I absolutely loved. So we talk about the book itself. We talk about caregiving and comfort. I have some incredibly thoughtful questions from Patreon members, but mostly we are talking about the process of writing a book whose goal was to send a hug out into the world. I definitely think that goal was achieved. Thank you, as always, to our Patreon community for making sure that every podcast has a transcript. I also have a compliment today. I love this to Leslie F., Squirrels hide most of their winter storage near your home because you are the most trustworthy and kind human they know. If you would like a compliment of your very own, or you'd like to join our Patreon community, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. And hello to Becky and Eliza. Thank you for joining the Patreon community as well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Rothy's. Rothy's believes that style is about more than just fashion, and that's why everything they make is exceptionally comfortable, totally sustainable, and machine washable. This is my favorite part. With sandals and an array of colors, with shoes made for exploring, their newest styles have you covered, and their spacious, also washable bags are perfect for late summer getaways. I love the fact that I can look stylish and comfortable when I'm hosting some major family event. Someday I will do this again. And then if I spill something, I just put my shoes in the washing machine. An entire pot of turkey broth? Yes, on my shoes. Are they clean? They look great now. So don't worry about red wine, chocolate. Spills are no problem for Rothy's. You just toss them in the washing machine and they come out looking brand new. You can keep it fresh this summer with washable shoes and bags from Rothy's. Head to rothys.com slash Sarah to find your new warm weather favorites today. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash Sarah. This episode is brought to you in part by Gainful. There is nothing more personal than your health. So when it comes to finding the right nutrition supplements to meet your fitness goals, you need a personalized approach. Thankfully, now there's Gainful, a personalized nutrition system that's formulated for your body and your goals. Gainful gives you peace of mind that your protein, hydration, and pre-workout supplements contain the finest ingredients specifically for you. I love when there's a quiz. And this quiz is wonderful. I started by taking the five minute gainful quiz, which considers my dietary needs, my fitness and health goals, and my unique physiology to personalize my formula. Then I received a follow-up email from a registered dietitian who is checking in that what I had received was working for me. Gainful delivers my supplements with no shipping charge every month. I can cancel anytime or adapt my plan as needed. But this is my favorite part. The supplement is flavorless and I receive different flavor boosts so I can customize how I want my supplement to taste. Chocolate and peanut butter, matcha green tea. It's up to me. I have options and I'm not stuck with a giant tub of one flavor that I'm going to get tired of. It's a total win. Start your personalized fitness journey today with Gainful. Get $20 off your personalized supplements by going to gainful.com slash Sarah. That's gainful.com slash Sarah for $20 off. Gainful, personalized nutrition made for your tastes. This podcast is also brought to you by Headspace. If you have tried meditation before and felt like it didn't work or maybe like you were doing it wrong, have a look at Headspace, especially if mental health is part of your self-care plan this year. 
Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the occasion, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has 30-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down meditations that Amanda and their members swear by. And for parents? Headspace has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Since I started using Headspace, my day goes a little easier when I start with meditation and I've meditated nearly every morning. I feel pretty great. I also love the focus music collection in the Headspace app. I love the variety and I love the curated playlists. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash Sarah. That's headspace.com slash Sarah for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash Sarah today. This podcast is brought to you in part by stamps.com. I feel like a next level podcaster when I say that. This summer is beginning to feel a little different. I have more options of things to do and enjoy outside. And oddly, I have more errands to run. What's with that? But with stamps.com, I can skip the trip to the post office and save on postage. Woohoo! I am, as you know, a small business owner. And stamps.com makes it so easy to ship prizes, swag, and giveaway books by the box full. And they offer deals I can't get anywhere else, like 40% off USPS and up to 66% off UPS shipping. I can use Switch and Save to compare carriers and find the best rates every time. Stop wasting time by going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code Sarah, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. There are no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. That's stamps.com, promo code Sarah. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. I am so excited to bring you this interview. Let's get started with my conversation with Becky Chambers. My name is Becky Chambers. I am a science fiction author. I'm best known for my Wayfarer series, the, uh, the most recent of which is The Galaxy and the Ground Within. I've also just recently had a brand new novella come out. It's called A Psalm for the Wild Built. It's the first of my monk and robot books. I am based in Northern California, and I'm happy to be here. I have to tell you first, congrats on the release of A Psalm for the Wild Built. What will readers find in this book? And I asked because I tried to explain to my husband what, what I was reading. I had the hardest time just describing the completeness of this book. It is, first of all, it is wonderful. Thank you so much for releasing it into the world. How do you describe this book? Because I am terrible at it. You know, if it makes you feel any better, I do find this one to be a difficult one to sum up. Okay, so let's see you. how I do with my <laughs> nutshell version real quick. So A Psalm for the Wild Built is a solar punk science fantasy that takes place on a secondary world. It's a little moon called Panga. And in this world, 
humans have achieved a, a harmonious existence with nature. We yeah. have built a thriving, um, sustainable society and everything works pretty well. Um, the, the catalyst for this was that a couple centuries ago, the factory robots of the world gained sentience en masse for reasons we still don't understand. Um, and we offered them a place in our society, but the robots very politely declined and said they would prefer to observe the world without us. And so they wandered off into the wilderness um, and have not been seen since. So they occupy this space that is very akin to urban legend. People know that they're real, um, but you know, nobody's seen one in, in a few hundred years. So mm -hmm. we fast forward to now. Um, our protagonist is a monk uh, named Sibling Dex who travels from village to village offering tea and a friendly ear. There is more to their pro profession than that, but it's, it's the very short version of it. Um, and they cross paths with a robot named Mosscap, making the first contact between their kind um, in, in a very long time. And uh, the two of them form um, an accidental friendship. They encounter each other at these very pivotal moments in both of their lives. And so they, they go on a cool road trip together uh, and figure a lot of things out. How did I do? Was that a I think was that, that was, I mean, <laughs> I, I, there is no greater authority on this than you, possibly also your publicist, um, because they've probably written about nine drafts about how to describe this book to right, people, right? right? No, I think, I think my publicist can probably sum it up even neater than I can, but there we go. <laughs> but that was dead on. I mean, that was, that was brilliant. There is a wonderful theme of caregiving in this book. And I read some other interviews that you gave about this title, about how you wanted to release sort of a, a hug into the world, um, which was a extremely generous and well done thing. And I also love how in the, in the book, the theme of caregiving has different permutations. There's different ways of caring, including letting go and also trying not to pour from an empty vessel, which is something I definitely struggle with. You've okay, first, you made me cry. Did you cry writing this book? I, I did. I, okay. I, I cry. I mean, I cry at everything, but just yeah, by default. Yeah, so, the, 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 <laughs> the cry switch but, for me is a, is a, is a very short switch. Right, right, same, same. Um, but yeah, no, I I often cry while I'm writing, um, and I, I did I did tear up while writing this yeah. book. I will say I will say without spoilers for um, you know for those who haven't read it yet. Um, there, there's a scene that takes place. Uh, it's raining quite heavily in this scene, and that's that's the bit where I got I got a little. I got a little teary right yeah. in that. So yeah, no, I, I very much like to, uh, to get into character as it were when I'm, when I'm writing. So I definitely, um, I, de I feel it when I get into those spaces. So. I bet. So how, how did you explore caregiving with this, with this novella? Was that, was that a deliberate intention or was that where you ended up? Uh, that was very deliberate on my part. Um, you know, uh, sibling decks, their, their, their whole religion is based around this idea of comfort. So within the Pangan pantheon, you have six different gods. Dex's specific god is the god of small comforts. And so that can mean a lot of different things to different people. And, I, and that's how care works, right? What is caring or necessary for one person may not be what someone else needs, Somebody may need to talk. Somebody else may need to be left alone. Somebody may need something material. Someone may need something that is completely ephemeral that, you, you know, you can only give through interaction that you can't actually hand them. Right. So I, I really wanted to underline in this book that care and love and friendship um, are things that take 
on just myriad different forms. You know, there, there is no, I don't think this is approach to really everything from the world building to the, the technology, to everything in the book. There is no one size fits all. No, you know, there is no solution that works for everybody. Self-care means different things to different people. Compassion means different things to different people. And so the most important thing you can do, I think, is be open to that, to not come in in a prescriptive way and say, oh, I, I'm going to fix you based on what I think you need. The important thing is to go in and ask the question of what is it you need and how can I help? Um, which is like Moscap's introductory line in the book as well. You know, what do you need and how can I help? That That's where care starts because anything else is just, you know, you trying to slap a Band-Aid on something without actually looking at what the problem you yeah. know, really is. It's it's talking without listening. Exactly. One of the things I love is that sibling Dex is not good at being a tea monk when they start. And their intention is, it's almost as if their intention is, I have to be good at this. I have to be good at this. I have to be good at this. Only later do they realize to be good at this, I have to put aside my desire to be good at this and receive what is coming at me, whether it's go park yourself by yourself and be alone or here, I have given you something to go because clearly you cannot stay off you go. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's a big part of it too. I'm glad you brought this up because yes, they, they come into it. Um, with this very strong desire to to do this well. And it comes from a good place. Like Dex is a genuinely compassionate person. Oh, yeah. But compassion, the, the, the trait of compassion does not mean that you inherently know how to deliver it. Do you no. know what I mean? So I, I wanted to make it clear that this that that care is something that takes work. It takes effort. You know, it, it's not something that just um, you know, just sort of bubbles up because you're, you know, you're naturally a generous person. It does require an exchange and it does require focus and hard work. Oh yeah. And that caregiving is a skill. It is a skill that takes a lot of labor and it's, and it's a skill that happens in a lot of ways with work that you don't see. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the word labor because that's it exactly, you know, this is work for yeah. Dex and not just in the, the tangible way of like, they have to set up the shrine, they have right. to make the tea, like, you know, they're doing very physical things, but it's emotional labor for them as well. They're often quite tired at the yeah. end of the day, even though they feel satisfied with their work, it is still exhausting and it does require them to take a step back and sort of put this, you know, saying they put a mask on has this connotation of being dishonest, but that's not it at all. They have to to be this very public, neutral sort of figure. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it does, you know, have a cost. And yeah. I wanted to point that out as well, that even, you know, someone who is kind and gentle and who is doing this nice thing, it's still tiring. Yeah. You know, it's still, it's still something they are giving and they have to be able to take. Yes. And it, and it is work. And mm -hmm. one of the things that Dex comes to realize in the, in the book is that that work has a cost to them that they didn't really measure as it was happening until it was 2% battery charge immediately. Right. Things are right. bad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. One of the themes early on in the book, again, trying not to spoil is find the strength to do both. I loved this phrase and how it was reflected in so many ways in the story. How did you arrive at that phrase in this world? I know that's a very broad question, but I just, I love the way that duality is reflected so many times in this book. Absolutely. So find the strength to do both refers again to the pagan religion, which has these various gods. So I'll 
get on as quickly as quickly as I possibly can. So you have the God of small comforts. You have the God of mysteries, which includes both arts and sciences. And you have the God of constructs, which is everything we build. Um, and that can be, you know, tools that can be houses that can also just be society itself. Anything that humanity has invented is a construct. I wanted to, with that phrase or with that whole concept, really look at what, what does comfort do for us? Like, what is the, what is the benefit of comfort and, and why is it that we need it? You know, we tend to look at comfort as a luxury when I really think it's a necessity, you know, um, things like, you know, what Dex does, they go out and make tea and listen, this sounds like this very fluffy thing, but it is actually this, um, this very needed thing in a lot of people's lives, you know, and also, you know, this extends to other things within their, their religious tradition, um, having gardens and places for people to rest. The fact that there's a book that's a treatise on beds and, you know, how to rest properly. These are things that here in the Western world, we look at as optional or something that you have to earn, but really they're, they're what fill us up They're what bring you up from that 2% battery. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so find the strength to do both refers to the fact that, you know, life is a pursuit of what the other two gods, you know, there are two realms of you are chasing mysteries. You are trying to understand the world and you're building things to help you do that. So Comfort is what allows you to do that. It allows you to invent. It allows you to learn. It allows you to build. You cannot sustain these activities because they are they are massively taxing things. You know, whether you're, you know, a researcher in a lab or whether you're a painter or whether you're, you know, someone who, uh, you know, a farmer, whatever, whatever it is, you need comfort. You need rest. You will not have the strength to do either of these things unless you take care of yourself and unless you let others take care of you as well. Um, I, I, I really, really wanted to, to double and triple down in this book, this idea that physical comfort and emotional comfort are not optional. They are what enable us to do great things. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of um, to be taught if fortunate you go and learn, you go, you go to teach and you are, if you're fortunate, you also learn, you can't just do one. Right. I'm so glad you brought that into it. But yes, that's exactly it. That book too is very much about, um, openness and not coming in with your own sort of agenda as yeah. to here's what I'm going to impose upon you. You're coming into a space that is not yours and saying, what can you give me and what can I give back? Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that, that, that book too is very much about, that willingness of exchange and and the humility to to recognize that you don't have all the answers and that's actually a good thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I also love that in this world technology and nature are very integrated. They're not at odds with each other. Um they're supportive of each other in a lot of ways and I really like that because you know we are part of nature and we made technology. It cannot be a separate thing. And I'm guessing right. that was a deliberate choice yeah. in the construction of this world. A hugely intentional. Yes. I I have a bone to pick with the idea that nature and technology are inherently separate and it ties in exactly to what you just said. We are part of nature. Yeah. We're animals like this. this, We have this concept and it's one that I've really struggled with. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles, like born and raised there, you know, so my, my mental image of how the world works was skewed from the beginning, you know? And so it's, it makes sense that a lot of us 
wrestle with this idea that the world exists without yeah. us and that you know cities are something we built i mean we know this intellectually but this is not the default state of the world this is something that we made and it is part of nature you know even the most you know grubby concrete like vo- devoid of trees environment is still part of nature even though it doesn't feel that way it still exists on this planet mm-hmm. therefore it's part of the ecosystem you know yeah yeah both in genre fiction and in the real world we wrestle with this we we present nature and technology as these opposing forces. And I don't think that they have to be, they, they really don't, you know, technology is just tools, you know, fire is technology. If we know how to wield it, you know, cooking is a technology, you know, so th- this idea that we have to, you know, radically scale back or sort of, um, you know, we have to give up some the, the benefits that technology has given us in order to, you know, preserve the ecosystem within it. I mean, there is something to be said about like getting rid of the idea of, you know, um, extractive resources and like unchecked growth. That's a, that's a whole completely different, completely different topic. Yeah. Let's, let's get rid of that. But technology in and of itself is not bad and it is not opposed to nature. It is something that we as natural beings use and create. So we have the ability to make things, to construct things that, work in tandem with in 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 harmony with absolutely the world around us that's just a, a choice we make right yeah absolutely and the things that we create in technology are still reflections of our humanity and different as- <laughs> aspects of it and we are animals so in effect the things that we create may not end up being used for beneficial purposes but we they are still creations of us Right. I have a Patreon community and I like to tell them in advance who I'm interviewing. And I had so many excited people. Malara wanted me to say, I enjoyed all of the Wayfarer series. The fourth book's small group of strangers come together in emergency isolation and try their best, including missteps because we all screw up sometimes, is a favorite setup of mine. Absolute favorite is still the first one. I love the way every single one of the characters we're coping with different challenges around intimacy. How did you fit exploring all of these permutations of intimacy without it feeling overstuffed? I mean, piece of, piece of cake question, right? Like, oh, well, there was, I had a spreadsheet is probably the answer, right? Is there a spreadsheet? Uh, I did not have a spreadsheet. What I had, what, okay. So here, here's, we'll have to get into the process a little bit. A yeah, little a little bit. bit. We'll That's fine. The, Let's do it. Get into the nitty gritty. So I don't, outline and I don't write chronologically. And um, so when I was writing The Long Way to a Small Agree Planet, I had literally a shoebox um, that was just filled with notes and scraps of paper and like notebooks and, you know, just all kinds of stuff from yeah. the, the years that I'd been working on it. What it, the, the short answer to this, this very chewy question is that I threw a lot out is what it came <laughs> down to. I probably wrote a whole second book's worth of stuff for what actually ended up on the shelf, you know? And that tends to be the case with a lot of stuff I write is that I just throw characters together and see what happens. And I write things and some of those scenes work and some of them don't. And there reaches a point where I have a critical mass of stuff. And I go through and I cherry pick, I'm going to use this, I'm going to use this. And I cobble them together and I shuffle them around. I literally just get post-its and put them up on the wall and switch them back and forth and figure out what the order of all this is going to be. And then I go through with a fine tooth comb and polish it all together. Um, So with the long way in particular, because you've got, you know, nine different point of view characters, which is a I don't know if I'll ever do that again, but um, but (laughs) first book, nine people, let's do it. 
It was a matter of just making sure I had the balance right. Honestly, in a, in a really boring sort of way, it came down to color coding. Um, I had my post-its. I had a different color for each character. And I would look at the wall and say, does this balance? Yeah. Does this work? Is there too much of one color and too much of another? And granted, there are characters who naturally, because that's how stories work, come to the forefront more, or we hear from them more than other characters in the story. But it really was just a lot of tinkering and fine-tuning to make sure that everybody's story was being told adequately, that I wasn't leaving anything crucial out. Part of that also came down to reading the book out loud, which I do with all my work as well. Reading out loud, I find is, is, is an enormously helpful way for me to not only, you know, sort of clean up the prose and make sure that the conversation sound natural, but it also does give me a very good sense of, you know, what is this story actually about? Because you can get really lost in that um, when you're in the thick of writing a book. So yeah, it was it was a matter of just constantly taking the temperature, constantly taking the whole thing and putting it on a scale and saying, you know, who, who, who are we saying too little of? Who are we saying too much of? Am I hitting the right notes? And on and on and on. I get it. I also write out of order. Nice. I, I mean, I can remember in college printing out a paper that I was writing or writing it out and then having to cut paragraphs apart and like rearrange them and then figure out what I just done. Even when I write now, if I'm writing a, a book review or if I'm writing something longer, like an essay, I write entirely out of order. Yeah. And the ability just... to move little blocks around even digitally is such a lifesaver. I, this is, this is why I'm a huge fan of Scrivener. Oh yeah. Love, yeah. Yeah. I love, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but for me, I just being able to, to drag things back and forth is, it makes my life so much easier because yeah, I have done the scissors thing as well yep. in the past. So I'm, I'm very glad to, uh, to be able to leave my scissors on my desk and, and just then, use pixels instead. And then you're standing there with this one paragraph, like, where is, where was this? Where does yeah. it go? <laughs> does, do I, one of the, one of my, um, pandemic habits this year that I picked up was I taught myself how to quilt because you can learn anything on YouTube. Now you can learn plumbing, yeah. advanced mechanics, quilting. But one of my favorite aspects of quilting is that when you've done all the blocks and you do lots of different blocks, you can hang something like a, like a picnic tablecloth on the wall with the felt side out and you just slap the fabric on there and the felt acts like Velcro. It'll hold it on. So you can take all these little tiny squares and then put them in this big wall and then step back and be like, Oh, too much blue over here. Too much red over here. Let's move the pattern all around. And I'm like, wow, this is the perfect hobby for me. It's like writing, but with fabric. See, and that's, it's, that's the post-its exactly. So yep. I'm just like, that's brilliant. Yes. That's, yes. That's My perfect. brain works this way. Thank you. <laughs> When you find the tools, like we were saying earlier with technology and technology is a human invention. When you find the tool that works with your brain, it's like, oh, whoever made this, you are the greatest person. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for understanding the way my neurons are wired. Yes. I really appreciate it. Yep. Yes. Because they are, they do, they wire in their own way. <laughs> they sure do. Molly from my Patreon asked, my question would be, how do you create the different character species and keep all of their physical and emotional traits and personalities organized? They are all marvels, all so different and complex, but unique. Does this go back to the, to the post-it notes? Is this part of your visual system? This is different than post-it notes. So there's, oh. so there's, so, okay, there's two answers to this. The first answer is, so, you know, how do, how do I create the different species? For me, when working with aliens, it always starts in a place of biology. Um, right. I take a specific physical trait, let's say, um, for, okay, the Aluans, who are the one of the primary species in the Wayfarer series, um, they, they have these chromatophore patches on their cheeks, chromatophores being uh, 
color changing skin cells mm-hmm. like in cephalopods, so squid and octopus, et cetera. Um, and they don't have vocal cords. They don't have, they don't um, naturally have a sense of hearing. They communicate through color. And so um, I, that is something that was inspired again by real life critters that live in the sea that I'm very into. And so I'll take just something like that, just very simple thing. Their skin changes color and this is how they communicate. And I blow that up to a civilization level and I just run thought experiments on that. If you communicate through color, how does that affect your art and your architecture? How does it affect your clothing if you even do wear clothing? How does it affect the kind of everyday technology you have in your home? Um, How does it affect the way that you record information? You know, all these sorts of things. And, you know, what sort of adaptive technology do you need to be able to communicate with other species who do use verbal speech um, or, or, you know, um, if they, they obviously would have a different uh, emotional and cultural connection to color than you. So how do you interpret or misinterpret them and their spaces when you enter them? These are just the sort, you know, that's one example. That's just one thing, but you can get so much just out of, they change color yeah. and that's true for everything, be it they lay eggs, they can't thermoregulate, they, you know, they don't, they only eat once a day or they eat all day long, you know, like all of these things affect how you build your spaces, how you conceive of family and society, how you, how you organize yourself, yeah. you know? Um, so that's, that's where all my species start. That's the genesis of my species, right? In terms of keeping it organized, um, I have a, a locally hosted wiki that lives on my hard drive and is backed up elsewhere as well. And that's where all the details of my species live. Um, and, and it became really necessary once I got past one book and knew I was going to be writing several more. Um, a, because, you know, I, there was just so much, <laughs> I needed to keep it all straight, you know, cause otherwise I would get letters and, you know, that's, that's how these things, how these things go. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up with a lot more information and details than ever made it on the page. Like you don't need to know what the evolutionary history of Aloans is. I know what it is. Does it do it? Does it affect the story? No, but it does. It helped me write these characters and write these cultures um, to have all those bits and pieces, even if, even if they're not something I share with anyone else. I love the idea of your own internal wiki. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. It's like a story Bible, digitally searchable, control effable, which is so important. It's control effable. It's so, it's so easy. And also because, you know, when I was writing the fourth book, I had touched on some of these other species that were in there before, but you know, it had been a minute since since I'd been with them. And so I could just write, say, Quellin, which is another species. I could just type that into the search bar and everything I had about, you know, that I'd referenced here and there. And if I'm good, I don't always do this. Sometimes I'm lazy, but if I'm good, I'll put where in the previous books you can find these details. So I can just flip to that chapter and be like, oh, okay, that's what I've got. And that's what I've got to work with. So yeah, it's incredibly convenient. It's a lot of work to put it in place, but once it's there, it's, yeah. it's a fantastic tool. Doing your future self a big solid favor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you have a wiki for Monk and Robot? I do not. I have just a notebook for Monk and Robot um, because it's not, uh, it's not as expansive. Yeah. Um, and especially because these are novellas, I am not delving quite as Deeply with every book I write or every setting I work in, you know, I'll have separate notebooks for that. So this is just just the monk and robot notebook, you know, and I've got tabs all through it so I can flip to, you know, different lists of 
technology or different cultures or, or what have you pretty quickly. So it's, it's the, the, the analog version, right. the, wiki, the, 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 the very slimmed down version. Right. Of the wiki. Eventually maybe, but right now it's, it's analog. right now it's, it's right now it's manageable. Yeah. So with, um, Monk and Robot, do you remember where this story started? What led you into this particular novella? You know, this is a, this is a tricky question because it's not one specific Never, thing. Just there's one a, yeah, thing, there's right? a lot. Of, I like the, the, I want the, to write optimistic nihilism in the book. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It was, it's a hodgepodge of so many different things. You know, I, I, the metaphor I like to use for writing books in general is that it's, it's like making dinner out of all the leftovers you have in the fridge. Yes. You know? And that's exact. That Monk and Robot is that especially, you know, it's, Everything from my lifelong love of robots to I have a keen interest in solar punk and also in, uh, you know, regenerative technology and rewilding and all these sorts of ideas. And so it's just this this mishmash of of things I've been, you know, hoarding like a magpie over the years and eventually was like, I think this all I think this all fits together. Um, I will say that that one of the one of the sort of the the ideas that, that pushed me into writing it was I really wanted to write something for an adult audience that that felt like pure comfort and and the the way that the the impetus for this idea was I was really looking at the way I had been consuming media and my friends had been consuming media over the past the, the past like five years or so where we're living in this age where there's so much tremendously good TV and movies so and much. everything out there and all of us were gravitating towards like cartoons or kids shows which is there's nothing wrong with adults nope. watching kids stuff at all but like we're, we'd watch kids shows or we'd watch um you know stuff from like the 80s and 90s you know like revisiting old favorites or we'd watch cooking shows and we would say these things like oh yeah i've been meaning to watch this other thing i've heard it's really good like well well you know whatever the the critically acclaimed darling of the moment was and then no one would watch it because we just wanted to go back to something soothing because we were all so burned out and tired right yeah and much as i love watching you know shows from my childhood or shows that are intended for someone's childhood now I did look at that and I said these aren't these aren't speaking to me where I am in my life right now they're comforting and they're fun and I love them but they're not about someone my age they're not about me they're not they're not speaking to me and um so I wanted to see could I write something for an adult audience for someone who is you know where they are at right now that still scratch the same itch as cartoons or cooking shows. That was the, I guess the, the experiment I was running with this is, is how, how would I go about writing them? What would it look like? How do I write comfort the book? Let me check the, what I call the crock pot in the back of your brain. Like all the ideas that you have, they just go in there. And then like nine, 10 hours later, it's like, I have an idea and it is fully cooked and ready to serve. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So what is next for Monk and Robot? I am so excited that this was a Monk and Robot story implying that there will be more of them. Yes. I've, I've just finished the second book. It hasn't been um, formally announced yet, so I can't talk in too much detail about it. But I did just finish the second one. So yes. it is the continuing story, the continuing story of Dex and Moscap, um, who, who will be leaading the wilds for this book and, and head, heading on into uh, into human territory. So we'll, we'll, we'll continue, continue going down the road with them. So we're going to stay with them. 
Yes. No, I, I read an interview that you gave in 2016 with Cultured Vultures, which I will link to in the show notes. And you mentioned the cello analogy as advice for aspiring writers, which I just loved. How do you care for yourself? And would you would you be, would you be kind enough to explain your cello analogy? Because I'm certain yes, you can do it much better than I can. I will explain the cello analogy. So my wife's cousin uh, is a professional cellist. She travels the world and, and plays the cello. That's what she does. And I struggled a lot when I first started writing with with burnout and with taking care of myself. Um, I, I think this is very common for for folks in creative fields. We romanticize that we romanticize the idea of, you know, you're going to write this book fueled on coffee and angst. And, you know, if you're not staying up until three in the morning, because, you know, you're, you're so, you know, in love with this idea, then you're not actually passionate about it. You're not actually writing this book. We tend to measure the worth of a project by how much we have bled into it. And it's this really damaging idea. Um, And I think that it's damaging for people who do it for a living, but I think it's something that also prevents a lot of people from actually completing projects because it's not sustainable at all, especially if you're doing it alongside a job or raising kids or both. Like you have this idea that you have to give your entire self to a project and you just have to keep carving pieces off of yourself in order to do it. And no one can or should work that way. Like no piece of art is worth that kind of suffering. Like it's, it's, it's ludicrous. And I will, I will die on the hill that we need to just completely uproot this idea and throw it out because it's, it's, it's so dangerous. My wife was actually the one who pointed this out to me where I would get into these, you know, the sort of spin where I'm like, Oh, I can't, you know, I can't go out. I can't like take a break. I need to, you know, just work, 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 work. Like I would really just, you know, nose to the grindstone. And she mentioned her cousin and she's like, you know, she takes time to oil the wood and to restring her instrument when she travels, you know, she buys a separate plane ticket for the cello because it can't, go down in the cargo hold, it has, you know, because the the temperature affects the wood and the strings and all of that. Like she spends hours every week just taking care of this cello because if she doesn't, she won't be able to play it, right? Like if she doesn't do that, the strings are going to break, the wood's going to get weird. She will not be able to do her job if she doesn't take that time. And my wife was like, do you, do you think that's an unnecessary thing for her to do? And I was like, well, no, but that's different. She's like, it's no different at all. She's like, you are your own instrument as a writer. You don't have like this physical object that you have to take care of. You are the instrument. And if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to keep doing this. Your strings are going to break, you know? And it's still, I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this, but that was something that um, that really hit home and that I work really hard on now to, to, to make sure that I am making that time for myself, because it's true. If we, you know, there, there's nothing creatively good about burnout. If you burn out, that means you can't work. You know, that means like you can't actually get the thing done, or maybe you did get that one thing done, but now you're not going to be able to write another one because you're just toast. Mm -hmm. Um, so things I do to take care of myself. Um, I mean, a lot of this, some of these things are, you know, there are things that are just sort of normal everyday stuff that I think anyone can do. Some of them I, I recognize are very much um, a privilege that I have is that from the fact that I can do this full time. For example, uh, I don't set an alarm. 
I know that is not a reality for a lot of people, but I don't set an alarm. I sleep as much as I need. And I just take naps through the day if I need to. Uh, I eat my vegetables and I drink my water. I, you know, the, the, oh, we're just going to do this on caffeine and sugar. You're going to, yep. We're both hydrating as we speak. Um, you know, just these very, very basic human maintenance things that everyone yeah. should do regardless of whether or not you're trying to write a book. Um, I make time for things that have nothing to do with yes. writing whatsoever. I don't write every day. And I know that's not the case for everybody, but there is also that thing of like, to be a writer, you must write every day. No, you need to have, you need to be disciplined and you need to have a good work ethic and you need to be able to write even when it's not fun mm-hmm. or you need to be able to not chase an idea just because it's new and shiny you need to finish this thing you started that does not mean you have to write every day that does not mean you need to treat this like um like a corporate job or something you punch into if you sit down to write and it's just not happening that means you're tired and it means you need a break or some food or some sleep or both so making sure that i am first and foremost taking care of myself that that's my priority and then the work comes after that's that's really key it is key. for me. And I think it should be for, for everyone, regardless of what you're making or what you're doing, you have to take care of yourself yeah. first. And it's it can be hard for me because my my website and my podcast are also my my full-time job. And it can be really hard for me to not work. One, because I live in my workplace and I have always lived in my workplace. But I also realized I love what I do. I love what I do so much. It completely knocks my socks off every morning where I wake up and go, holy crap, this is my job. I love it. It's so great. Oh my gosh. I adore what I do, but I also know I can't do it all the time. And as much Mm -hmm. as I love what I do, I can't do it all day, nonstop, 10 hours a day, seven days a week or more. Um, I like sleep. I really like sleep. It's like my favorite thing. Sleep's amazing. Sleep's and we all do more yes. of it. The other thing too about making sure that you're not doing it every day, because I'm the same. I I do this because I love it and I love to write. And if 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 I let myself go unchecked, I will very easily, like if I'm on a tear or something, I'll forget to oh, yeah. eat. I'll stay up what all time night. Is it? Like what? I huh? oh, yeah. work. And sometimes that's great. Like, I also don't, I'm not going to punish myself for doing that. Like if I stay up until three, because I was on a tear, like, and I'm going to sleep, you know, and I'll sleep till noon to to make up for it. Fine. Like, that's okay. But brains are weird, right? Like brains do this thing where they, they figure things out when you're not working on them. If I'm stuck on something in a book, it usually means I need to go do something else. And like, that I don't know what it is about doing things that are completely unrelated that unlock possibilities or ideas or concepts that you didn't think about, but something about just stepping away from it and making sure you don't get fatigued, but also letting yourself cross pollinate yeah. with different ideas and different activities that have nothing to do with your writing at all, make you a better oh, writer. Yeah. You know, like, and that, that goes for everything from don't just read your genre, read other stuff, make sure you have hobbies that don't touch this at all. Make sure you go see other people who have different jobs. You know, like a lot of my people, my friends, you know, are in the book world or the creative world or the writing world, but I really value the friendships that I have outside of that because it reminds me that not everything is this, you know, it's again, leaving yourself open to possibilities and making sure that this is not your one thing will actually make that one thing a lot better. Oh, for sure. And I find that for me, especially creating something in a completely different venue 
helps me reinvigorate the joy that I find in creating what's my job. It helps mm-hmm. refuel exactly. that because the creativity, the, the urge to create, the urge to make something, the urge to play is located in all of the things that I do for, for fun and enjoyment and replenishment. But when it's your job, it's a slightly different thing. The play comes with a sense of awareness. Whereas if I'm playing mm-hmm. in another area where I'm not as aware of what, what the final product will look like, I'm not, it's not for monetization. I'm not worried about it. It's, you know, metrics. I don't care about the search engine optimization of the quilt that I am making. The quilt does not care. Um, the only thing that I have to do is make sure that I have a secondary fake project for the cat to sit on. Like that's my <laughs> obligation right there. Did you know there's a whole subreddit called cats on quilts? It is no, nothing not, pictures, but it does not surprise it's me. It's nothing but pictures of people's cats on their quilts. And I'm like, this is my favorite place in the whole world. <laughs> but placing that creativity in another venue replenishes the creativity that I need to, you know, do my job. And learning that, yeah. learning that my brain has a, a primary and a secondary almost drive. Like the part where I am doing something else replenishes the, th- the larger thing that I'm working on. That's why I call it the crock pot in the back of my brain. It just stuff goes in there and like 10 hours later, something great comes out. Exactly. Exactly. And I, you hit on something so important too, which is do things that you're not going to sell. Yes. Do things for the joy of it. Yes. You know, I mean, this is that we, we, especially, especially here in America, right? Like this whole idea of you need to have your side gig. You need to hustle, like grind, you know, grind, your grind, grind into your job. No, you don't have to. No. Like I, this is something I often say to, um, to aspiring writers who are like, you know, how do I get published? I said, the first thing you need to ask yourself is why, why do you want to get published? Mm-hmm. Like, do you, do you actually want to do this as a job? Because if you do great, but you need to recognize that you're pursuing a career. If you just want to write for fun, that's valid and that's good. And you don't have to sell it. If you don't want to, nope. if you want this to be your job, cool. But like, otherwise feel free to just write. I write a ton of stuff that no one sees. I write things that are just for fun. I write things for my tabletop role-playing group that no one will receive is for four people. And yet I'm writing like a spare book every six months for these folks, you know, just be, because it's fun because there's no pressure yep. because, you know, there's, I don't have to worry about all the things that, that, you know, that come along with selling something, with doing something publicly, allow yourself to have joys that are private yes. and that are just for fun and that are perfect, you know, do it just because it feels good. Don't worry about whether or not you can sell it. If you want to great, but like you don't, not everything has to generate capital. Not everything has to, you know, be something you can slap a price tag on. It is enough to just enjoy it. Yeah. It is enough to just enjoy the process and the joy that comes along with making something, you know, that's, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough as it is. That, that has value. Yeah. And, and the whole concept of flow, the idea that you yes. get into the flow and that you get into this wonderful state of, of existence, the moment you're creating, that is, that is just existing in that state of creativity. That's enough. That's more than yeah. enough. That's freaking awesome. I love that. No, that's, that's, I mean, that's the, I mean, honestly, that's the whole reason I, I did want this as a job because that's all I want to do is flow. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I just wanted to be able to set up my day where that's what I, that's what I do. Yep. It is the most satisfying feeling there is so to, to just lose yourself in a thing it's for so a while, great. even if that thing turns out to not be good, even if it's something you throw out in the trash the next day. Yep. Being in that headspace is what makes it worth it. Yep. So what books are you reading that you wish to tell people about? 
So I am currently reading Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. Speaking of, make sure you read things outside of your own genre. Good outside. It's fantastic. It's so good. I cannot shut up about this book. Like anyone who, who lives with me or, you know, who I interact with auction, I can't stop talking about the Odyssey um, of all things, right? I would highly recommend this. She's done an incredible job of making this ancient, very well-trod story feel fresh and new and contemporary um, and stripping away so much of, you know, the Victorian nonsense that's gotten accumulated on top of it. Um, it's a, it's a stunning piece of work, both in terms of, of translation and just of poetry. Um, it's, it's a story I know really well, but um, it's making me see it in a whole new light. It's really beautiful. I love when a new translation does that. I loved watching yes. linguistics people flip out about the translation of Beowulf. Yes. And how the first word was bro. Beowulf yes. <laughs> <laughs> is next on my list. It's it's also on my shelf. And my wife has her uh, her background in historical linguistics. So this oh. has actually been a really, a really fun thing to have in the house because we've been, you know, I'm going ham about the poetry and she's talking to me about ancient Greek. So yeah. it's, you know, it's a good time. <laughs> that is that is a good mix. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Becky Chambers for hanging out with me and answering all of my questions. Thank you to Malara and Molly for questions from the Patreon community. Thank you to the Patreon community for making the transcript possible. Thank you to Garlic Knitter for the transcript itself. I wanted to share one of my favorite quotes from this book because I really, really enjoyed it. I will link to my review in the show notes so that you can find more about this book and also where to buy it. But at one point, one of the characters, I won't give a spoiler, says... Why do you have to have a purpose in order to feel content? You're an animal and nothing has a purpose. The world simply is. It is enough to exist in the world and marvel at it. You don't need to justify that or earn it. So if that kind of message is something you might find as comforting as I did, I definitely recommend you go find this book. As always, I end with a silly, terrible joke. And this week is no different. I am ready. Are you ready? Okay. <clears throat> Why do bees stay in their hives in the winter? Why do bees stay in their hives in the winter? Swarm. <laughs> Swarm. <laughs> that joke is from 808 Gecko. <laughs> I love wonderfully terrible jokes. You know, you can send them to me at spjpodcast at gmail.com. And I love when you do. On behalf of everyone here in my office, including Wilbur, who insisted on snacking on and off during that whole interview. Thanks, buddy. We wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.